These are our Halloween decorations. It's a little cheerleader, a little football player. I'll be talking about those later on today. Oh my gosh, we need it more than that, though. It is so good. I won't. Did you hear us? I don't hit the table. I'm not on the future, that's for sure. Last Tuesday, President Biden stood in the state dining room and gave a speech. And he said in those speeches, as he introduced it, There are moments in this life when sheer unadulterated unadulterated evil is unleashed on this world. The people of Israel lived through one such moment this weekend. We've all had in our minds this past week, some to a higher and more intense degree than others, the events in the Middle East. And not only have the people of Israel gone through horrors, the people of Palestine have as well. I know how heavy the conflict between Hamas and the government of Israel is. I cannot even imagine how those people who are living in that land are facing it and dealing with it. It's been in my head all week. It's kept me up at night. Maybe it has you too. I have really wrestled with the complexity of it. The pain of the innocence and the children experiencing such horrors. Our Secretary of State, uh, Blinken, said this past week, a baby, an infant riddled with bullets, soldiers beheaded, young people burned alive in their cars or in their hideaway rooms. I could go on, but it's simply depravity in the worst imaginable way. It almost defies comprehension. Catherine Russell, who is the uh, executive director of UNICEF, says many children have been killed or injured while countless others have been exposed to the violence. When it comes to the innocence and to the children, it crosses national lines. And she's referring not just to the children of Israel, she's referring to the children of the Palestinians. And our hearts are absolutely broken by what the children and the innocents are having to face and how this will affect them from years to come. The horrors. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus said that you never step into the same stream twice. Had he been a preacher, he could have said that about Scripture. And he could have said that about a movie, a book, a television show, or a a work of art of some kind. We see things and read things and observe things and see them differently depending on where we are in our life, what day it is. And that's how I felt about our text this week, Psalm 23, 4. After the events of Saturday last week, Psalm 23 took on a different meaning to me. It changed my feelings and my perception of our text, which is, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, 
they comfort me. You know, in light of the events this past week, this verse either gives us comfort or we look at this verse and think that's just a bunch of BS. How in the world can anyone look at what has happened this past week and not be afraid of evil? I fear no evil. Really? How can you face what these individuals are facing and not be afraid of it? I fear no evil. Just ask the attendees at the music festival in Israel last week. Ask the Palestinians who are running from the bombs. Ask the Palestinians who have been oppressed for the last 75 years. Ask the Jewish people all over the planet who went through the Holocaust and who in our own country are facing on a daily basis increase attacks verbally and physically of people expressing anti-Semitic views. Fear no evil. How could we not be afraid of the evil? I really think the people in Israel and in Palestine and many people in our own country are afraid of evil. I would be. And I think you would be as well. The poet of Psalm 23 does not deny the reality of evil. Nor does the poet deny the capacity of evil to do horrible, horrible things. Now, when we think of evil, we typically think of what Hamas did a week ago Saturday. It was intense, it was extreme, it was horrific, and we've heard leaders all over the world with their adjectives to describe that evil. But the Hebrew word for evil that is used here in Psalm 23, 4 is much broader than what we saw Hamas doing last Saturday. The word is R-A, Ra. Don't get it confused with the Egyptian god Ra. That's a completely different uh, meaning. So do not imply that the god of Egypt, Ra, is evil. The words are not even close in their uh, understanding. But according to a theological dictionary of the Old Testament that I have at home, the word raw means to be wrong in regard to God's original and ongoing intention and detrimental in terms of its effects on people. So really, anything that has gone contrary to God's intention and anything that is harmful to people is evil. That obviously includes what Hamas did. That's not God's intention, and that certainly causes harm to people. But it includes the unkind words I say to people. It includes times that I don't treat others with respect that would cause them harm. The word raw goes from one extreme to the other. In fact, this is how the word is used throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Sometimes it's used just to refer to something that, that is bad or even something that is unpleasant. It refers to people being unhappy because of a situation or miserable. It refers to somebody just being unkind or who has a bad disposition, a bad temper. That covers a lot of territory, doesn't it? What I am learning from this word and this passage 
is that I'm capable of evil. I'm capable of not doing God's intentions and not cooperating with God in fulfilling his intentions. And I'm very capable of doing harm to people. I don't have to be guilty of what Hamas did to be guilty of evil. In fact, the root word for raw, according to one uh, theological dictionary, is rotten or spoiled. I'm so thankful for Denise because if I weren't married to Denise, I'd be eating rotten food all the time. I don't even pay attention to expiration dates, but she does, and she is so good, and because of her thoroughness in that, I'm still alive today, (laughs) but uh, my gosh, she will look at it, and it takes her twice as long at the grocery store than it does me, because she looks at every product that she buys to see if it, when the expiration is, I just put it in the cart and go on. Take, take my chances. But that's what it is. She's trying to avoid evil in my life. She doesn't want us to eat anything that's spoiled or rotten. Uh, and in the terms of it being spoiled or rotten, it kind of goes back to another nuance to this word evil, uh, meaning something that is functional or dysfunctional. If it's rotten, it's not functional in your life. It's going to be dysfunctional. So it's the word that means, is is something really working or is something not working in your life? Right now, we could say Congress of the United States is evil because it's pretty dysfunctional right now. And so that's really basically what that word raw means. What an extreme uh, application that that thing has. Dr. Phil said this, you either contribute to or you contaminate a relationship. So I either help a relationship or I hurt the relationship that I'm in with Denise. Mother Teresa said, I'm a little pencil in the hand of a writing God who is sending a love letter to the world. Gosh, that's very poetic, isn't it? So we are all letters to other people and I'm either a letter of love or I'm a letter of hate. We're all writing something in the lives of other people. And so we all have the potential of being evil of doing things that are harmful to other individuals. So when we read evil in Psalm 23, 4, let's not just think about what Hamas did last week. Let's think about those little acts of unkindness and those, as Chris mentioned, the tone of our voice at times can be evil as we speak to one another. So we easily and we rightfully condemn and we claim and we name what Hamas did as evil. But I want you to consider this. We know that what Hamas did is evil. Are we willing to admit that the oppression that the Palestinian people have lived under since 1948, 75 years, is also evil? It's harmed them. And it's not what God intends anybody to experience. Rebecca Alvarez, who's a licensed social worker, says this, As a Jew, I understand that the root of violence in Gaza is oppression. The Israeli government may have just declared war on Hamas, but its war on Palestinians started over 75 years ago. Israeli apartheid and occupation And the United States' complicity in that oppression 
are the source of this violence. You may not agree with her, and you may agree with her on all of it or on some of it. But you and I have got to understand the big picture that evil is just not a terrorist act. Evil is any time we don't treat another person as equal. Any time we do not speak and act in a way that is of the benefit of another person. She refers here in her statement to apartheid. When you all think about apartheid, my mind goes to South Africa. Well, a couple of years ago, Amnesty International declared that the Israeli government, and I want to make really clear distinction between the Israeli government and, and the people of Israel and the, and the Jewish people. Just like I would want to make a clear distinction between Hamas and the Palestinian people. But they declared, Amnesty International did it, the Israeli government is guilty. And they declare that the government of Israel is, has set up an apartheid government in their land. Now what apartheid literally means is an institutionalized regime that oppresses and dominates people according to their race. So it favors one group over another based upon their the race. That's what happened in South Africa and Amnesty International says that's happening in Israel right now. And are we willing to call that evil? The poet of Psalm 23 has adopted a very strong stance in the face of this real threat, in the face of evil. He says, I will fear no evil. His stance toward evil is no fear whatsoever. I don't know how he does that. How in the world can we face evil without being afraid? One way we do it is through humor, laughter. Clarence Jordan is one of my favorite people. He uh, went to school, University of Georgia, got an agricultural degree. Then he went to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, back when Southern Baptist Seminary was more inclusive and more theologically progressive than it is to, today. And he got his uh, master's in, and then he got his Ph.D. in, in New Testament uh, theology. Well, after graduation of, from seminary, he started the Koinonia Farm, which was the, uh, the, probably the first organization around that integrated the races. He started Koinonia Farm in 1942. There was nothing in the United States that was integrated at that time. But he started that. And you may have heard of Clarence Jordan. He did a translation of, of the New Testament called the Cotton Patch New Testament. And you, we're all familiar with Habitat for Humanity. Well, the Koinonia Farm was, the, were the, was a seed for Habitat for Humanity. Where Clarence Jordan learned to face evil with humor. He was accused of fraternizing with a guy by the name of Miles Horton, who was a stated communist. Nobody doubted that he was a communist. And so Clarence Jordan, when he was accused of hanging out with this communist, said this. I really have trouble with your logic. I don't think my talking to Miles Horton makes me a communist any more than talking to you right now makes me a jackass. I don't know if that's what Jesus would do or not, but I sure like it. 
he faced the evil with humor. When the Koinonia community uh, tried selling peanuts, big thing in Georgia, as we know, uh, at a, uh, a roadside stand, the KKK came and, and dynamited the thing. Well, Clarence Jordan, like all fighters for social justice, it has, is tenacious. And so they built another stand, and the KKK came and blew that one up too. So they decided, Clarence Jordan and his organization did, that they would sell peanuts on a mail-order basis. And so they advertised for it, and here was their uh, tagline, help us ship the nuts out of Georgia. Yeah, I like how Clarence Jordan dealt with evil. He just had to laugh. So what do we do with evil? And how do we avoid being afraid of evil? Well, we all know that we should face our fears. Face our fears, unless it's spiders. Yeah. Denise is not afraid of anything except spiders. And she will not face spiders. She will scream. And she will stomp and she will smash. And she will set the fires on, uh, spiders on fire. But she will not face the spiders. What she really does is just call me. So I have found my purpose in life. <laughs> when she calls me that there's a spider somewhere, I'll put on my Spider-Man outfit and come. And I'll capture the spider and take him outside and set him free. Now, face your fears. We need to learn to face our fears. We don't like how fear makes us feel, and so we try to deny our fears. We try to ignore them, try to hide the fears, but we really can't hide the fears. They pop up in so many different ways. Uh, face your fears. Go ahead and run with scissors. Yeah, just face your fear. No, don't do that. But face your fears. We're coming up on Halloween. And uh, Halloween's a good way to face your fears. Uh, there are a lot of parents who are very well-meaning. They love their children. They want their kids to be safe. And uh, you may have grown up in this world, and you may have been, uh, you may be a parent who feels this today, that Halloween is just not a good ho holiday. And uh, I grew up in a world in which a lot of people said that Halloween is the devil's holiday. And so there was just a real big opposition to it. And I, I try to embrace Halloween in, in a good way. But uh, I don't fault these parents. They just want to do what's best for their kids. But I have appreciated what some therapists have said about Halloween. And one therapist said that Halloween is like a, uh, a vaccine of fear. That if we can give our kids a little bit of fear, it will protect them from the big fears later on in life. And this, these therapists will say Halloween is supposed to be about imaginary fears, not real fears. And so the therapists recommend, as far as decorating your house or something, and I've discovered that, wow, I don't know why, but over the last several years, uh, the decorations have just been really morbid. And just awful, just scary. And, you know, that's why we got the nice little pumpkin heads <laughs> in our house. I just, that's not scary. And, uh, but the therapists say, don't decorate your home with things that can possibly happen to people. So don't have any people, you know, mannequins outside your house hanging. People have really been hung in our country. 
don't have a body as a decoration with a knife in him or a hatchet in the head or whatever. Those things are real. And they recommend make your scary things about imaginary scary things that the kids know would never happen to them. But these, some of these things really do cross the line, and they're very, very dangerous. And so Halloween can be an opportunity to, I think, face your fears. A second thing that we can do is to evaluate our fears. NPR interviewed a, uh, an Israeli man named Golan, whose home was attacked by Hamas. His family was safe. They had a super strong safe room in their house that would withstand a missile attack. And so the, his family uh, came out just fine, but he didn't go, didn't go into the safe room. He was upstairs trying to uh, just observe what was happening. And when people came into his house and they didn't find anybody, they went next door and they blew up the house next door. And the NPR interviewer asked Golan, said, do you remember feeling fear? And he said, yes, if you don't feel fear, you're an idiot. Yeah, we feel fear. I don't know how we can face evil and not feel fear. But maybe it, here's the point that I'm trying to apply to my life. Maybe there's a difference in me feeling fear and being fearful. Feeling a fear is kind of a, a one-off. But but. Being fearful is an attitude, and I just live on a, in a fearful state, and that just is debilitating to a person. Now, at its very basic level, fear is a good thing. It's a survival instinct. When we are threatened, when we are in danger, we need to feel afraid so that we can protect ourselves and not be eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. The problem is not all fears are created equal. There was a public library in Alabama who banned this book called Stella because the last name of the author is Gay. So they banned the book. Now, the director of the library admitted that they made an error. But the word, the name Gay, appeared on a list that they had created through their computer system of harmful, scary words that they wanted to stay away from. Gosh, I'm scared of that library director. <laughs> and people in that camp. Yeah. Evaluate your fears. Are they really legitimate fears? Or are they manufactured in order to oppress people? In order to harm people? The poet of Psalm 23 lives with a no-fear attitude because, if you remember the verse, thou art with me. But here's the deal. I've got to be honest with you about that. The presence of the Lord does not prevent us from ever going through the valley of the shadow. I don't fear evil because thou art with me, but the poet still went through the valley. A lot of us were taught that if we're good spiritual people, God will protect us from bad things. There's a chapter in the New Testament, the Christian Scripture book of Hebrews. Chapter 11 is called by some people the Hall of Faith. It lists these great patriarchs of the Hebrew faith 
who expressed faith at great risk to their lives, and they were, were rewarded by God with good things in this life and a, and a peaceful death. And so they, you know, you live good, you die good. You live well, die well. And just this list, name after name of people who had great faith, and they were, were rewarded for their faith. And so there's this idea, if you read those verses, that, wow, if I'm a good person, if I'm a spiritually good person and moral person, then everything's going to go all right for me. Everything's going to be good. No valleys in my life. But then we get to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 to 37. So we got this group. Then we got this group. Others, however, who still had great faith, were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn, sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They, were, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, and tormented. You see, contrary to what many of us that were taught, good people are not exempt from bad things. From violence. Murderers don't give the godly a pass. A rapist doesn't vet their victims by looking at their spiritual resume. Good people, morally, spiritually sharp people, experience valleys. Jesus talks about this to his disciples. And uh, recorded in Matthew chapter 10. He tells them, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. The disciples needed that information because Jesus had just told them in verses prior to verse 28. That they were going to be hated, they were going to be teased, they were going to be mocked, they were going to be put on trial, they are going to be scourged, they were going to be beaten, they were going to be killed. That was quite the, uh, the pregame pep talk, wasn't it? It's like the coach saying, you all are going to get your butts whooped out there on the field. Now, put them in here. Break. Yeah. They needed to hear this. Jesus says, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to be persecuted. Some of you are going to be killed. But do not fear those who kill the body Fear the ones who can kill the soul. Jesus gives me an entirely different perspective on fear. He doesn't say that all we have to fear is fear itself. He does say we do have something to fear. We have to fear not those who can hurt us or kill us, but fear those who can take away our soul. Martin Luther King Jr. exemplified this. He chose not to fear those who would harm him. On April 3, 1968, he spent hours on a plane on the tarmac because of bomb threats. Finally, the plane took off and it landed in Memphis that afternoon. That night, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke in the uh, Mason Temple, which is the headquarters of the Church of God. And in that speech, he said these words, We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. 
Like anybody, I would, live to li- I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. He's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over. I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Martin Luther King Jr. would be dead in less than 24 hours. But the people who meant him harm fell short of their goal. They took away his breath, but they could not take away his soul. So what is the soul? The soul is my purpose in life. The soul is my integrity. The soul is my reputation. The soul is my character. It's my reason for being. Jesus said, fear those people who through their behavior and through your response to their behavior make you unkind and make you mean and bring you down to their level. Keep true to who you are as a child of God, as a person created in the image of God. Don't lose your soul. Don't lose your identity by becoming evil. Yeah. The promise of Psalm 23 is not deliverance out of the valley. Yea, though I walk through the valley from the beginning to the end. There was no rescue out of the valley. No one swooped in and took him out of the valley. He had to go into it all the way through to the other side. God never promises that he's going to deliver us out of the valley. What does he promise? I'm going to walk with you through the valley. You will not feel one thing. You will not experience one thing. You will not hear one thing. You will not go through one thing without me feeling it, hearing it, going through it with you. From the beginning of the valley to the end, I will walk with you. Golly, it's not the gospel that we want to hear, is it? We want the miracle, the deliverance out of it. That's not what the psalmist experienced. I asked a question this past week, what is your valley? One person said, stage four cancer. Watching my husband fade away the years before he passed. Realizing at my husband's funeral that I was going to have to do it alone for probably a long time. I have been through more than I wish. I always learn a lot and come out a better me, but I really want to be done with the dark valleys. My valley was losing my son. My valley was losing my husband. Watching Alzheimer's suck the life out of my mom. My current situation is my valley. I'm in stage four cancer. Somebody responded to her, said, I am there myself. Ha, the darkest meaning which one? There have been definitely a few. 
Yet they somehow keep turning into beautiful things. If you figure out how it all works, please share because you're smarter than anyone I know. I don't think she was talking to me. I appreciate that, though. Which time? Each of us has faced more than one dark valley. This person wrote, it's the separation that challenges us the most. Whether it be a child leaving for school, someone moving away, a divorce, or death, it's that separation which becomes the most challenging. But this wise person, a good friend of ours, nevertheless, we may be separated, but we are never alone. The dove has been historically a symbol of peace in the presence of good things. In the Hebrew story of the flood, it's the presence of the dove that indicates the chaos and the death is over. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. In the Mexican culture, the Aztec culture, and the ancient Greece culture, the dove was a symbol of love. In the Olympics, at this opening ceremony, doves are released to symbolize the desire for all the participating nations to have peace. In the midst of the bombs going off and the children dying and the innocent suffering, in South Gaza there was a presence of a dove symbolizing that for the people of Gaza I think there is the presence of God for the people of Israel there is the presence of God as they go through the valley and there is in your valley the presence of God let's pray As we go through the valley, God, who is our father, our mother, our friend, our shepherd, enable us to hear, to feel, and to see you. May that presence that is there Give to us the peace and the love symbolized by the dove. I ask this in the name of love.